It's very hard to get people to be interested in debating individual art reviews. I mean, that's part of the crisis, I think, is a lack of conversation, a lack of willingness to debate opinions. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. There are endless ways to write about art. But if you tell someone you write about art, the first thing they're likely going to think is that you write art reviews. In other words, the art critic is a key character in the mythology of the art world, as a champion who spots talent and interprets art for the public, and, simultaneously, as a villain who serves as a gatekeeper and a killjoy. Yet this central function of the art writing ecosystem has also been facing real difficulties. Recently, there's also been a fresh round of debate about the state of criticism today. Is art writing now too positive, too promotional, or not critical enough? What should the goal of writing about art even be? And if there actually is a problem with art criticism, what's the cause and what's to be done about it? Our national art critic Ben Davis wrote a two-part essay for the site that reviews some of the issues at play. As the fall art season kicks off, I talked to Ben about the problem of art criticism now. Hi, Ben. How's it going? Oh, good. Yeah. I'm happy to be here to talk to you about this. I'm interested to know what you think about this subject. Right. So you're an art critic, which is no secret around here, and you regularly write about art and art shows. But today we're going to talk, as I said before, about art criticism itself. And it seems like there's a near constant meta conversation going on right now about the state of art criticism, a debate maybe about what a destitute state it's in at worst. But generally, there's a lot of talk about where the genre of writing is headed. So can you kind of summarize the main points of that discussion? Yeah, well, in a nutshell, the main thing that people seem to think that you hear a lot is that art criticism is too positive. There's not enough negativity. That people should be taking harder, bigger, angrier stands. And I think there is something to that. You know, there is a sense of low stakes that for various reasons that I think we'll talk about here, that it feels as if everything is kind of in a middle register or too genteel or too commercial. And the only thing I want to say about that before we go further is that I think it's going to be important to tease apart what about that is contemporary and what about that is kind of a permanent feature of the discussion around art. Because this conversation about the crisis of criticism goes way back. I mean, we're talking about this big two-part essay I did just last week, but Someone replied to me and sent me an essay they'd written about a book that came out in 1998 called The Crisis of Criticism. Mm. You know, in my piece, I reference, uh, I think, a really good essay called A Quiet Crisis from the early 2000s by a really great critic, Raphael Rubenstein for Art in America, where he was talking about why don't critics make big judgments anymore? Why don't people act and argue about art like it matters. So there are contemporary aspects about this that I think we're going to get into and talk about. And there are kind of permanent historical versions of this question. And this is an interesting feature of the conversation. It's very hard to get people to be interested in debating individual art reviews. I mean, that's part of the crisis, I think, is a lack of conversation, a lack of willingness to debate opinions. 
But if there's one thing that criticism and critics produce, it's reflections on criticism. It's like people don't care about the individual little things, but they care a lot about the big conversation about criticism. Right. And as you said, you wrote this two-part piece about that very subject. And the jump-off point for your essay is another essay by another art critic based in New York, Sean Title. And Tatel is one of these figures that is part of this ongoing conversation. And it's important to maybe like explain a bit about what he does to sort of get into the conversation. He's a critic behind the Manhattan Art Review, which is a young independent online publication that, as you note in your piece, has made quite an impact lately. It's got these pithy reviews of New York art shows, and they're not exactly always nice. No, they're mainly not nice. Exactly. Yeah. And even though it's very much centered on the New York scene, I've been following it from Berlin. People are reposting it and talking about it in Berlin. Really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Just to describe it for people who haven't landed on the page, it's got this very like protestant aesthetic that's in maybe Times New Roman. There's this 10-point font. There's no picture of the shows that are spoken about. Then there's this critics corner, which I think you'll explain, that has these like short reviews that have these one to five stars beside them. So what captivated you about Tatel's approach? And maybe that's a segue into talking about his article and the point in particular. Uh, yeah, I guess we should acknowledge at the beginning, this is kind of a weird interview and that there's a kind of a missing character. My essays were responding to his work and he's not here to defend himself. I guess that's kind of a tribute to what he's doing. I mean, I'm interested in it because I'm a critic. I feel like it's a struggle to get people to care about reviews. I have, think about this constantly. It's a form that I actually really care about. And there's a little bit of buzz about the Manhattan Art Review. You know, it's a genuinely indie project. I think that's interesting and cool. Let me say something about criticism in New York that might give people an idea. The New Yorker just named its new art critic, Jackson Arn. And universally, the reaction around me was, who is Jackson Arn? Like, people were really not just kind of, like, jealous or angry, but confused. Like, who is this? How can this person I've never heard of be replacing Peter Sheldahl, who was the previous art critic? We interviewed him on the show and is one of the greatest to ever do it. And I'm like, folks, he's been writing for them for a while. <laughs> and I think that's really emblematic that the people who care most about the subject of criticism, who genuinely care, you know, who's has this position, the most important, probably art critic job for the biggest general interest uh, culture magazine in the United States, you know, actually haven't been reading it. <laughs> you know, they're not watching that space. I think that's a real representation of how hard it is to get people interested in reviews, which in some ways are the central piece of the art writing ecosystem, but in some ways are the most neglected at this point. So Sean Tattle's Manhattan Art Review has a little bit of buzz. That's fascinating to me. I went to a talk that he gave at the South Street Seaport, another art critic, another person who has a lot of attention on him lately. Dean Kissick hosts these series of talks that have been a really interesting reference point. There's a lot of buzz around these talks. And it was a packed house to see Sean Tattle. And it was just fascinating to me because here people were just talking about art criticism and people were here for it. About half the people in the audience, I think, really disagreed with Sean Tattle, did not have problems with his opinions. And about half are people who adore him and think that he's like a really exciting, truth-telling voice. And I think that reflects the character of his art criticism, which is very opinionated and sometimes very personal. 
But at the same time, for me, it is an exciting thing because I can point to it to my editors and the people and say, look, there is an audience for art reviews that is a neglected form of writing. We're going to get into this. There's a question is like, is our criticism too negative? Is it too positive? I think that it's mainly that there's not enough dialogue, that people are very atomized, not talking to each other. So I make an effort every month to like try and read everything that people have written. And that's how I came upon this essay, which I thought was interesting. So what's like the gist of that essay? Maybe you can give a little synopsis of negative criticism in the point, which came out in July. Sure. It's called negative criticism, and essentially it is giving a theory to what he does. Sean Tattle has become well-regarded, most specifically for his very short reviews. He writes a lot of very short reviews of gallery shows that he grades on a scale of one to five. They're snappy. They're often calling bullshit on what he's seeing. They're funny, salty pieces of writing and distinctive. What's interesting about this text is that you could view what he's doing from a distance as kind of a character. He even defines it in this essay as like the insufferable crank. Mm -hmm. You know, he says like some people say, you know, if you follow this method, you'll just end up as an insufferable crank. I say we're in need of more insufferable cranks. But it's a very sincere essay, and it is essentially making at essay length a intellectual argument about the value of negativity, the value of strong opinions. And if I were to sum it up in just a couple of sentences, I think what he's saying is that uh, strong opinions are good for their own sake, that art is about quality, if there's no judgment of quality, then you don't even have something like a sense of art. And therefore, it's actually even more important just to have high standards than what the content of those standards is. Content, I don't think that's irrelevant for him. You know, what the grounds you arrive at are, I think he has tastes of his own. But the argument is that the act of judgment is an end of itself. Like having strong judgments is not only about cultivating your own sense, that there's a better and a worse, but that actually serves for other people as a way to encourage them to like raise their standard. Even if they don't agree with it, think about is a good in of itself. That negativity is a good in and of itself. And to a certain extent, I think the buzz around this independent media project is a little bit of a validation of that thesis. I think you summarized it well. And I also think that, as you said, he's not here in this conversation, but this is a conversation that he articulates very well in this essay, but it's one that's been going on. Yeah, folks should go read the essay. Definitely. But it's a conversation that's been going on for some time now. Quality versus interpretation, basically. Let's get into this question of quality. There's this like idea that quality is something that, as you say, you need to like define and defend. And as you point out, if you go back to essays from 10, 20, 30 years ago, there is a constant moral panic that we need to return to some better, earlier sense of standard, right? Can you talk a bit about how this quality conversation gets thrown in the ring over and over again, but also how it's really being argued right now? Sure. Well, there are multiple factors behind that. Let me talk about the main one for Tattle, and this is maybe where I start to disagree with him, is he kind of just thinks it's cowardice, that people just are too cowardly to take a stand and that you should just gird your loins and go to battle for art. So I think that's the main answer in here. I think that he sort of treats the what he perceives as a lack of judgment of quality. Although, again, I think there's actually plenty of negative criticism. I do understand 
and feel it too. There's a sort of smarminess or there's a sort of a feeling of dutifulness about a lot of writing about art. And there's a great diffusion of attention. But I, I do think you could point to many, many examples of negative criticism. However, I think if you dig a little bit deeper, there are some other layers that are connecting with that sense of intellectual lower stake. The biggest one is commercialism. And there's a reason we're doing this talk today. And part of that is because we couldn't do another talk. I was supposed to interview an artist who's like maybe the most visible painter in the world who became really famous on TikTok for painting people in the subway. It was a really interesting story. We were going to interview this guy. He's a realist painter. He's represented by UTA, not a gallery. It's a totally new kind of artistic phenomenon, which is why I was interested in writing about him. But came to the time to interview him and I'd prepared for quite some time and he's got PR reps who are like, we're going to need to see the questions. You give them your honest questions and they're like, he doesn't want to be asked these questions. So we didn't do the interview. I'm not a hanging judge. I have questions about this guy's artistic practice, but I'm also interested in it as a new kind of cultural phenomenon. I'm really interested in how art circulates now. I just mentioned that story because I think it encapsulates a lot of things. I'm giving people a look into the content pits, how the sausage is made. And I think people intimate the art world is a commercial industry that is changing in various ways. There are different kinds of actors and agents. There are different ways that people judge or find things important. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is stage managed. And I think people sense that. And that is part of a very real sense of lowered stakes. And there's a sense that there's not a lot of critical writing, as you say. And yet, at the same time, it feels like we're living in a constant state of hot takes and discussions yeah. and Twitter threads that are very well articulated, that completely dissect an issue, experts everywhere. So what's going on there? Because it seems to be like a total paradox. That paradox being that, on the one hand, there's a lot of debate about art. On the other hand, there's a perception that there's there isn't any. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, I myself have written essays about the crisis of criticism. There's always this kind of character to it where people just agree that there's a crisis and disagree about the fundamental character of the crisis. You know, at different times, people will be like, well, our criticism, the problem is it's too academic. And other people will be like, the problem that it's not academic enough. You know, there's no theory. The problem that it's too positive. The, the problem is that it's too negative. And I think that reflects, again, that for me, one of the characters of the present is a lack of conversation between people. That's among other reasons why I wrote a very long essay sort of responding to another critic. I've said before that one of the things that happens in the social media age is that the idea of an art world breaks down. It's a term we still use for convenience, but an art world is defined by the articulation and circulation of information about art, not by art itself, by the circulation of images and writing about art. If the main platforms where that happened are now not dedicated to art, but are very diffuse, you're consuming this stuff in a feed with a bunch of other stuff that it's competing against, you don't have the same kind of feeling of an art world, of a compact social space that's talking to itself. I think that's part of what is going on when people just viscerally feel what's going on, is that kind of thinning out. Now, one of the things that happens there is that art is in dialogue with a lot of other things, which is good. But a bad thing about it is that art starts to feel like it's just a piece of content along with every other thing. And that means that 
it doesn't feel special. It doesn't feel like a special subculture that you're part of. And so, among other things, I view Sean Tattle's project and the appeal it has to a certain subset of people, a small but robust subset of people, is sort of virulently against the background of that dispersal, reasserting a sense of, no, things really matter. And this really feels like a distinctive subculture with its own stakes. It's something he says in the article is that, you know, becoming cultured is basically at this point countercultural, meaning, you know, a commitment to the values of art as a special space, which used to be not that long ago considered as snobby and elitist and the very definition of a culture that a counterculture is reacting to, now that feels countercultural to people. And that, you know, I have quibbles and questions about specific formulations and definitely big disagreements with a lot of his opinions, which I think err on the side of being sharply dismissive of figures I take seriously. I think that there's something really to think about in there. Your article focuses at one point on this point, which I think is interesting, is that everybody remembers a bad review. It's harder to make something that is positive stick. And you also mentioned that superlatives work quite well to like make something stick in people's minds. You know, the media world tends to track in these directions. I think, though, what's interesting about that is that there's something going on as well with people trying to cluster around an opinion about what is good and what is bad. So there's also this idea about like making a negative review, but it's about being able to make a negative review about certain things, right? So there's sort of two aspects going on there. Yeah. Let me just say, just so people have it in two sentences, if I were to articulate how I would distinguish myself from what Sean Tattle's saying, intellectually, abstractly, not on the level of you know specific opinions, it would be that I think criticality is different than negativity. And I think pluralism is not the same as relativism. So to say the first, I think he says what's missing is negative reviews. And I think that you can be negative or positive in an automatic way. I think criticality is not the same as just a yes-no judgment. That it is about defining the stakes of a judgment, positive or negative. Now, it may be that things are very commercial and mediocre and they warrant a lot of negativity. But even so, the task isn't just a series of bad reviews. It's like making that feel like relevant and interesting, defining what the stakes are of negative reviews. And at his best, I think Sean Tattle does that. But I think that it, to give the impression that what's at stake is just... Uh, negativity, the need to be negative, I think, has potentially unsettling consequences. Partly for what you say that, like, we do live in this, like, very diffuse attention economy, and that I'm not sure the need for categorical judgment is the kind of wholesome response to it that I think it might absorb some of what it's reacting against because my experience of working in like the internet attention economy is that people are always pressing you to make categorical judgments. <laughs> people are always editing headlines of things that I write to be more categorical. 
that's the way to get people talking. You know, it's like the old BuzzFeed meme, is the dress gold and white or is it silver and blue? You brought up two terms that I think should be defined, pluralism and relativism. Can you break those down? In negative criticism, when Tattle is sort of defining why he thinks things feel bad, why he thinks they are the way they are, he basically says it's the fault of relativism. That today, for various reasons, people just don't think taste matters that much. That everyone has their own taste, and people like what they like. What's the big deal? And if you start from that point of view, it's very difficult to justify taking something seriously, you know, because one person's bad object is another person's good object. Why are you being a party pooper, you know? People get a lot of joy out of this, and he is making an argument that that lowers the stakes. It keeps us in a position of consuming a lot of mediocre and bad art and keeps us from demanding more. Right. I think there's some aspects of that. I think it's also, you don't want to get into fights with people. It's inconvenient to denounce certain kinds of things. You know, there's definitely like a lack of will on some kind of level to get along kind of mentality. But on the other hand, we live in a diverse world, you know? The idea that postmodernism, which is what people called the period after the 1970s when theory became very much focused on the question of the multiplicity of truths and the breakdown of the singular narrative of modernism, that art had a direction it was going towards. I have always had a mixed relationship to that kind of intellectual tradition because on the one hand, I do think there's a lot of intellectual laziness there. It's like people just absorb a kind of like sophomoric relativism in college. It's like, well, you know, what is truth, man, kind of perspective. But on the other hand, part of that tradition was about real problems with the idea of a single narrative and the fact that the world became more global and interlinked. Feminist movements and anti-racist movements where people asserted new and different ways of looking at the world. And you have to react to that. That's important history. There are different traditions. And I think that if art criticism is about anything, it's about challenging yourself to see things in different ways from different perspectives and helping other people do the same. So I think there's a kind of a danger of throwing the baby out the bathwater. Like I think there's a lot of frustration with the present that's being expressed in this idea of like a return to kind of values, standards, and beauty but there are problems with those ideas. And then I have a further thing is that I just don't think you need to throw out the idea of standards if you incorporate those things. The way I put it in my text is that like it does not immediately follow that if there is no absolute standard of truth or beauty or judgment, that there are no standards. There can just be multiple standards. Can you speak a bit about art criticism as a genre? Because art criticism is something that was formed in the Western canon as we're sort of talking about it loosely right now. But then you're speaking about a globalized art world that has its own separate different canons of discourse, right? So there's something to sort of sit on there too. Yeah, well, art criticism is young. It comes into its own about the time of modernism. Depending on how you reckon it, Charles Baudelaire could be the French poet. He's like considered one of the first 
real art critics. He incidentally wrote a very famous essay called The Painter of Modern Life, which is about this French artist named Constantine Guise. And what's interesting about that as an example is like no one remembers Constantine Guise. But against the positive judgment, against thinking about this art historically minor figure, you know, Charles Baudelaire defined the idea of modernity, that art should be about capturing the spirit of its time in a new way. And I just think that's an interesting example how maybe producing an idea is more important than the rightness of the judgment, which is, again, I think people are putting a lot of weight on the question of judgment as opposed to interpretation, the idea of interpreting what someone's trying to do, I think I would more balance those two things. The function of the art critic at a certain point of media history was just to tell people what was out there and what was worth seeing. As we've gone into the kind of internet age where people can just see what's out there and there's tons of opinion online about what's good and bad, the function of the critic has changed a little. And with such a diversity of opinion at your fingertips, you know, you'd have to like kind of raise your game a little bit in terms of being the person that people go to for their recommendations. I think we'd be also remiss to talk about art critics without talking about the economy within art, which art critics exist, right? So I think what's interesting about the Manhattan Art Review, like many other initiatives and platforms like it right now is that they have risen up outside of Mm -hmm. corporate models that have so long like defined the art world canons. What are you seeing on this front and how do you think that this is changing the perception of criticism today? Well, because of a bunch of things, there is a little bit of a post-institutional turn, you know, people creating spaces outside of the traditional venues for both art and criticism of art. That's like a pretty inspiring thing, actually. That's really positive, even if it does come from a place of frustration. That frustration doesn't have to go back towards art. You know, it could just get diffused elsewhere. It does suggest, you know, the function that art and writing about art serves, it's still got juice in it. But one of the effects of the internet on not just art writing, but online writing in general, is that it disaggregates it. Like you're usually not consuming a single website or publication. And that means it has a tendency to lose an attention on the local and small stories. Everything is competing in one big rainbow of energy for your attention. So naturally, the things that attract the most attention rise to the surface within that scrum. You're not reading generally magazines as a whole package, for instance, where the local news, the reviews of things that aren't famous yet, are part of the mix, you know, part of an ecosystem. And people have thought about that in different ways. I mean, I have thought about this very specifically as like, you know, save your effort because review writing does take a lot of effort for like synthesizing things, writing essays, taking the individual things and trying to define them as part of larger questions. I remember literally having that thought that it's like, you know, we need to turn art criticism towards that because that is how people 
read it. However, more and more as everything becomes kind of wrapped up in this continuous referendum on the news and things that are other than art, you know, I really do, and I think other people do, feel the lack of that, like, local attention. And in the end, it's very hard to arrive at bigger generalizations and bigger questions about what's going on if you don't have lots of writers looking at individual things, you know, kind of doing the primary research. In many, many ways, I think about this question as similar to a lot of other things in our just very broken economic system, that it undermines its long-term viability in the quest for short-term profit. Because in the short term, it is definitely the case that like, you know, very limited numbers of people actually read art criticism. It's not about a famous artist, it's not about a controversial subject. But that's kind of like how a lot of research done at universities isn't profitable, but you need it in order to get the big breakthroughs later on. And if you neglect all the resources that go into these things that on their own um, maybe don't feel that important, then in the end, you're just living off of past glories. Our world is not sustaining itself. In thinking about this after reading your essay, I was also thinking that there's a real problem with engagement, which, you know, obviously is something that we think about a lot on a website that's, you know, driven by engagement. But in general, I feel like I was saying this to you before, like high interaction, low engagement is sort of like defined the times. But in that, it's interesting this question of judgment comes up because we are actually being made to make decisions all the time. I would feel like people are in a yeah. state of constant decision fatigue, you know, like it's so tiring whether you're going to scroll on something or not. It's like a constant referendum. So I think that this question of judgment, meaningful judgment and context and engagement and really like reading to the bottom of a long form essay is really an important aspect of the discussion, right? So in that in context, let's talk about the art that gets reviewed or maybe doesn't. Like in your piece, actually, just a quote from it, you say, the truth is that not everything is bad and no one wants to say it. It's that most things are just okay, competent, but safe, somewhat, but not very interesting. You know, we're talking about perception versus reality a lot today. There is also this perception that art has become risk averse, a little bit less daring than before. And in kind of in parallel with that, so has criticism. Do you know what I mean? Well, yes, I think that is the real problem, is, is not that art is bad, but it's mediocrity. Now, mediocrity is not a synonym for bad, actually. You know, it's something that's in the middle. It's just okay. And in a lot of ways, the mid is the tone of the times. You know, people have figured out kind of how to make something that looks like art. And that is interesting if you look at it from a certain point of view, spend a certain amount of time with it. But... The problem is that that's not very interesting to write about. It's also not that interesting to dismiss because you're dismissing it on not very interesting grounds. You know, to say something is boring or mediocre, that's just not a lot of stake there, you know? If you could not make a form of writing based just endlessly reiterating the fact week in, week out, that things are mid, if that is the case, then you're sunk. So the question is, what do you do with that insight? You can go two ways. You can produce a form of writing that finds various kind of workarounds and is very dutiful because that's 
reflected in the character of the object. Or you can inflate the stakes, throw fireballs, and pick fights. And that will make it more exciting, but it will also tend to, like, overcorrect for drama. And that's a very internet-era thing. People picking fights to activate engagement. And I think that a default towards positivity is it has a commercial bias and may miss some really bad stuff. I think a default towards negativity may criticize some really good things and also miss the real, really new as it emerges. The really new tends to look like something that you don't understand. It tends to look alien when you see it. So if the message people are taking away from the contemporary situation is just the need to be unfailingly negative, I think that it's probably an overcorrection. It's not true to the real nature of the case, which is like, I don't think it's positivity or negativity people want. People want a sense that it matters. I have this mantra that I use, which is the judgment of quality is not the point of the piece of writing. It's the excuse for the piece of writing. Like it has to be in there. It's like the sand around which the pearl forms. But the pearl is the ideas, what this connects to in terms of like a narrative with larger significance. The things that do are few and far between. Do you find as an art critic, it's more difficult to make a judgment, a meaningful judgment, when work is based on a personal story because there's of course a lot of art right now has this sentimental undertone that deals with personal narrative and identity and past at least there is a perception again that you can't bring an opinion forward towards that that there is no way to objectively say that it's not good even though maybe under the surface people sort of think that it might not be well that's probably the most sensitive issue here is the question of identity and political art and so on and i have to say it's not totally clearly centered in this conversation in a way where it could be addressed honestly so far we are coming off of a period of really politicization in arts and culture the question of who's writing and who's making art has been really important for positive reasons I wrote a two-part essay about this because I also wrote a two-part essay about the Hannah Gadsby anti-Picasso show at the Brooklyn Museum. That show, I think, has attracted a lot of critical pylon because Hannah Gadsby's particular way of framing a debate about what art is represents the worst possible or some of the most reductive arguments about art that have been circulating. It comes down to, do you like the person behind the art? That's the most important thing. Everything else is secondarily. And that also, the sense that there's a lot of conversations unsaid because of a fear about how you're positioned vis-a-vis -vis that, is in the mix. It's something people are reacting. When they talk about taking down sacred cows, that's part of what people mean, whether they're saying it out loud or not. And if they don't know that's what they mean, well, that's certainly how part of people are reading it. That's in the mix. Sean Tattle was one of the first people that I really saw online just really calling out the Brooklyn Museum, like really ridiculing how bad the show was going to be way before it was up. So I kind of view these 
two things. You know, we've talked about the Gatsby a lot in a previous episode of the show. Now we're talking about the question of criticism more generally. I really view them as two halves of a whole in terms of a conversation. Because one of the things that has happened and part of the unfortunate commercialism of art is that it commodifies very important subjects like the question of political art or identity. So this is alluded to in Sean Tattle's essay. He really takes to task Holland Cotter, who's the New York Times art critic, for judging artworks based on their wall label, that this has a good intention that I agree with, and therefore it must be a good artwork. Just to throw this reference in there, there's this Sex in the City reboot, and just like <laughs> that. And literally they had an episode where Charlotte, who the character is an art dealer, is selling an Alex Israel painting. She's selling it to Sam Smith, the singer. And she says to him, this artist uses identity in his work, just like you. But isn't the artist Alex Israel? Yeah, I know. It makes no sense. But that's part of my point, is at this point, the discourse about identity has been reduced even in the show, which I think is like trying to like represent this as kind of a positive and hip thing to a kind of nonsensical talking point. That is where we're at with this. And that has produced a lot of frustration and a lot of really contradictory reaction. And that's where we're at. We should talk about that openly. It's difficult. You navigate, you know, I'm conscious of my own identity. I think people should be. There is a long history of, you know, white art critics getting it wrong relative to artists of color. There's a long history of male art critics getting it wrong relative to women. Those are all things to think about. But people tend to assume that they get it wrong in the direction of negativity as like saying, you know, no woman could ever be really a great artist. But it works just the other way, too, that sometimes people correct in the other direction and people can't tell. Are you just patronizing this art? That is a genuine concern. That is a genuine concern. It thins out the stakes of judgment, makes people feel like they're not being treated as a serious artist, and it produces various forms of contradictions and silences in the discourse. I was on a panel, and the question of judgment came up. Very prominent art critic said to me, you know what, I'm not that interested in the question of judgment. I'm interested in advocacy. But very few people say that out loud. So you get a sort of a sense that something has happened, some decision has been made, some set of criteria are at play that are not actually in the open. And that, again, that is in the mix here. It's part of what this sort of thinned out feeling people have. It's part of what people mean when they say, ah, there's a lot of art that's getting away with, uh, you know, just selling product. Because to a certain extent, people do use politics as a sales pitch. That's a real negative thing. So to summarize, you know, I think that this idea of maybe advocacy versus judgment as two things that should be able to exist in your head at the same time is a really important point. What gives you is like a feeling of optimism about the discussion right now? And like, where do you see this headed, I guess? Where it's headed, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really undefined. Again, that's kind of why I wanted to write a really long essay about something like this. Because I think I'm excited that people are talking about reviews or interested in reviews and so on, that it feels like we're at a pivot point. There's like interesting discussions going on. I think that some of the questions Sean Tattle raises in negative criticism are really important. I think the question of form is really important. 
among other things, I think a form of advocacy criticism disguised as judgment of quality neglects the question of that things you like might not be well done. You know, you might agree with a message, but not agree with how it's done. And therefore it might not be reaching the full audience. There are political reasons in order to pay attention to the question of form, as well as just the fact that the question of form is the question of art, the question of whether something feels resonant and relevant. These are all exciting and important questions to start having them even if we disagree with each other is a way of renewing the conversation and the field that's what makes me optimistic if i'm honest like i said people have been having the conversation about the crisis of criticism for a really long time i mean it's almost as long as there's been art criticism there's a question of whether or not criticism is critical enough because art critics by definition are critical you know they're critical of themselves they think a lot about why they like things they think a lot about what other people like and whether or not they'd agree with them so of course just as long as the field exists there are people going to be have harsh opinions about how other people do it i think that in some ways the character of the crisis people feel now is that people haven't been having this conversation for a little while. It's because there has been a period when people haven't been talking out loud, at least, about the stakes of judgment. So the fact that suddenly we're having it again, that it's out in the open, that's a good thing. It indicates that people care, that there's like vitality. There are new people entering the mix who are shaking things up, new kinds of references to engage with, new kinds of standards to try and figure out. I think that's all a really good thing. I tend to agree with you. I think that things have kind of come out into the open and it's a riskier time for sure and feelings can get hurt and people are going to disagree. But I think that it brings a rigor to the conversation that is always welcome. One can hope. It's been really interesting to chat with you about this today, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for helping me think about this, Kate. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.